Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Is it possible to have too much democracy? Probably yes, as our guest today argues. Democracy can be a good thing, but if forced into places and situations where it fits poorly, like a Thanksgiving dinner, then maybe we should rethink its limits. We discuss the nature and purpose of democracy and whether democratic politics is an end in itself or whether democracy exists for a purpose. Does too much democracy damage the very goals for which we have democracy in the first place? In this far-reaching conversation, we look at the problems of American democracy, at the sources of polarization and tribalism, and offer ways each of us can take small steps towards improving the state of our politics. Joining us today is Robert Talese. He's the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, New Books in Philosophy. His latest book is Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Well, thanks for having me. If this is going to be a conversation about overdoing democracy, maybe it makes sense to start with what you think are the proper constraints and limits on democracy. So there are all kinds of different things that one could mean when one just you know uses the word democracy. Um, so let's just stipulate, if you'll allow, that by democracy I mean sort of constitutional democracy, which is is intended to include the idea that democratic popular will formation uh, as a way of authorizing you know government action and the exercise of coercive political power is going to be constrained and limited by a publicly you know accessible uh, menu of individual rights and liberties. So when I say that democratic politics has to have constraints, I'm already taking for granted the, the very sensible point that, uh, that you just made, which is that, well, certainly it has to have constraints because not every aspect of our life is something that gets to be put up for a vote. And that seems to me to be not only true, but um, it also strikes me that um, certain, certain styles of democratic theory that have a hard time countenancing that kind of point, I think, are therefore um, non-viable. That is, individual lives are not the subjects of popular will formation <laughs> and um, certainly not the kinds of things that get regulated um, or, or managed. Uh, uh, maybe they get regulated in some sense of that word. They don't get managed and planned and orchestrated by the state. So accepting those sort of standard constitutional, what we might think of as liberal constitutional constraints, I think there's still the issue of the way that our identities as democratic citizens tend to organize in some ways we might say infiltrate um, condition, to use that kind of terminology, the whole of our social lives. So let me just give one example that, um, that comes up in the book. In the United States and in the UK, but uh, I'm sure you can find similar kinds of uh, trends um, in other developed democracies. When you mention, you know, where you how you arrange the furniture in your house, <laughs> uh, in the United States today, you know, the contents of your home are highly correlated with your partisan identity, such that the more clocks in your home, the more conservative your politics are. Okay, <laughs> I'm not sure what that, I don't know what that means, but I'll, uh, the, the, the more maps, the more maps that you have on display in your house, the more liberal your politics tend to be. I, I can go with that. I can I can understand that one. You might you might have maps with pins that showed all the countries you've been to. Good, good, good. And we also know that you know having in the United States having a passport um, yeah. highly correlates with being liberal. So you know these these spaces that we take it, uh, I think rightly to be out of the, or outside of the scope of the coercive power and surveillance and monitoring of the state are nonetheless spaces where our partisanship, our partisan identities are expressed, are signaled, are communicated, and in some ways, um, can, you know, sort of consciously or not, we organize them in ways so that they perform that expressive function. Is It seems that you could read it, though, the opposite way, which is as so what what we've seen over the course of quite a lot of years is is a sorting in the political process, and we have we have the two parties that have kind of taken on the two sides in this this massive sort, and maybe it's instead that there are kind of uniform cultures, so there are there are people who are socially open-minded and those people also happen to like maps for, you know, say the reason that Trevor mentioned or the passport reason. Um, there are people who are very 
fastidious and they like the clocks and then certain kinds of politics also happen to appeal to certain kinds of people. And so it's not it's not that we're performing our partisanship in the privacy of our own homes, but that the kinds of stuff we happen to like in the privacy of our own homes also informs the the partisan roles that we are most comfortable in when we enter into the political sphere. Sure, and I I I I I wouldn't want to resist wouldn't want to resist that reading uh, in particular. It seems to me that that's you know that um thinking of this as moving in different directions at the same time of it's not just a single causal direction seems to me to be right. However, these trends are relatively new in that when we talk about uh, partisan sorting, and now we mean partisan sorting now of actual physical spaces, you know, it's it's a relatively new phenomenon that conservatives living in the Southeast in the United States share more by way of lifestyle preferences, aesthetic preferences, occupations, uh, shopping and consumer habits, share more with conservatives that live in the Northwest Coast <laughs> than they do with liberals living 500 miles away on the East Coast. So that these trends have become um, more uniform across geographical space such that conservatives living in any part of the country live lives that are much more like other conservatives despite the geographical distance uh, separating them than they live, than, than their lives are like the liberals that they live close by to. That's relatively new. Of course, all that polarization and, and the, the diff, sort of different cultural attitudes of conservatives and liberals is, is not exactly what your book is about because you're focusing on maybe the effects of, of – putting democracy into places where it shouldn't belong. And I thought that the way you opened the book was super interesting, talking about Thanksgiving. And I must confess that I myself have written a what to do on Thanksgiving post before. <laughs> uh, but that one was actually about why the fact that we're debating at Thanksgiving and writing think pieces about what to do about your uncle is a demonstration that politics makes us worse people if we overuse it. Um, but you also point out that despite all these articles that said how to deal how to you know deal with your family at Thanksgiving and some of them are blatant where they actually ask people to you know essentially read the riot act to their uncle you know or something like this but you say no one wrote the piece that was just like how about someone says uh let's not talk about politics at Thanksgiving that that sounds like a good idea right Right. And, you know, so, yeah, the book begins and, you know, this is actually this is a true story. This wasn't just concocted for the book. You know, th this friend of mine, uh, right after uh, the last presidential election, he, she was really distraught by, you know, this coming Thanksgiving holiday that she was hosting. And she knew that or she strongly suspected that it was going to be, a, you know, a disaster because of, you know, different, um, you know, different family members are going to we're, we're going to bring to the dinner different evaluations of um, what just happened with the presidential election. And so as we talked, it just struck me <laughs> like, well, isn't there a way just to say to your family? Um, you know, we don't we don't even have to we don't have to suppress our political differences. We just recognize that, you know, we're here to do something else today, that the Thanksgiving holiday is about something that um, uh, is just it, it's, it's about um, cultivating and serving values of family and, you know, close personal connections that um, the insertion of politics into that is um uh, inappropriate. And that's not the same thing as saying, you know, bite your tongue or, um, uh, you know, suppress your politic, your political differences. It's the, you know, it's the suggestion that it's possible to just do something else uh, and to talk about other things. And when I suggested this to her, I said, well, couldn't you just send sort of like a mass email out? Don't pick out any particular, you know, uh, uncle or cousin or whatever to address this to and just say, hey, you know, this political thing just happened and everybody's got views about it and it's all good. But, you know, let's remember that the purpose of this holiday actually lies elsewhere. And so... Let's not suppress our political disagreements, but just, you know, kind of rise above them in a way that just says, you know, we're here for something else. And when I said to her, like, well, couldn't you just do that? And she said, oh, that'll never work. And I thought at the time, I'm like, you know, she's right. It will never work. 
But then later in the day, you know, the philosopher in me is like, well, why wouldn't that work? Is that, what does that suggest about the way we understand politics in our country? What does it suggest that it, it, it couldn't be a, an acceptable message to send to people who are about to attend a gathering that, by the way, let's not forget, involves a lot of good food. <laughs> it's like, the more I thought about it, I'm like, well, that suggests something strange and I have come to sense, see democratically pathological, right? Uh, about the way that we are enacting our politics. And I think that's an important sort of feature of um, the argument of the book. You know, the argument isn't politics is too divisive and we need a break. I mean, it, it is in part committed to that thought. But the fact that politics is so divisive and we need a break, if we don't take the break um, and don't create spaces where we can interact in pro-social ways in which politics is just out of place and therefore irrelevant, we actually do the politics much worse. Democracy suffers when it's all we ever do together. And the, the pushback I've gotten in, in, in about the book so far is, has been, you know, here's the thesis as a kind of um, – don't sweat the small stuff and politics is always small, which isn't the thesis. The thesis is, you know, politics is really important. It turns out that it's so important that uh, when we discover that in order to, to perform well as democratic citizens, we sometimes need to do other things. Well, we ought to start doing other things. The cause of this, though, or the critique here, I mean, so on the one hand, you can you can critique the way that politics might be important, but we're we're approaching it the wrong way. We're we're talking about it too much. We are getting too angry about it. We're yelling at our uncles at Thanksgiving, and so that's kind of a problem with the way that we as individuals, the way that we as citizens and family members are engaging with this thing called politics and democracy. Um, but the other the other way that this might go is that. The politics and democracy have themselves become such a problem or such a powerful thing that we are actually justified, say, in caring about them as much as we do in being as upset about political differences as we are. And so the problem is less like we're responding rationally to it and the problem is less with the way we're responding but with the nature of the thing itself. And so I guess I mean to clarify that point like if if your uncle it's one thing like if your if your uncle um is someone who you know wishes that we had marginally higher tax rates right than you prefer but in some cases maybe your uncle is someone who like if he got his way he would deport all of your friends and that seems like the kind of thing that maybe you should be mad at your uncle about so how do we how do we distinguish those especially when it seems like the two feed off of each other right so I, you know, I'm again wouldn't argue that passion and even fervor, and I would go so far as to say even animosity. These things are are I think intrinsic uh, and and inexorable to democratic politics, right? When we're when we're arguing about uh, politics, we're arguing about how a massively powerful set of institutions is going to exercise coercive force over. Uh, individuals that those institutions are also committed to saying are moral equals. Right? So, you know, uh, that should be a momentous, wrenching thing. Any exercise of uh, that kind of power by a massively powerful set of institutions over a population consisting of members, none of whom is another subordinate. It's, it seems to me that... Um, uh, animosity and heat and tone and spice is part of what we're buying, uh, buying into uh, and accepting in democratic politics. Because after all, exercises, you know, the exercise of coercive power over moral equals is something that not only matters but should be kind of hard to justify. It would seem to me. So. I'm ready to accept what sometimes uh, people tell me is a sort of classical liberal bent in my thought about this stuff, that state power is not easily justified. The argument is not that when we do politics, uh, we need to be nicer. I mean, maybe we do. I don't know. Uh, the, the argument is not that when we're engaged in political debate, don't get so heated because, you know, after all, you know, it's just it's only politics. It's that if we want to do well by our political objectives as Democrats, we have to do something in addition to politics. 
So it's not sort of put the brakes on democracy. It's, it's the more demanding ideal. You have to do other stuff as well. Other stuff as well, not where it's it's not a proposal for more uh, bipartisan softball games, although I suspect that that's probably not an awful thing. <laughs> it's not a reach across the aisle and invite your enemies, your political enemies to dinner. Those things might be fine. It's there have to be our success as democratic citizens, um, as advocates for the political policies that we are committed to, I would even say. This all depends upon capacities that can be um, developed and cultivated only under social conditions where we engage with other people in ways that do not invoke ours or their political identities. I mean, that sounds all well and good, but wouldn't it just be easier to use the political might of the state to crush our enemies? I mean, like, I, and I, I'm being flip about it, but it does seem like that that notion that democracy exists in part to enable us to kind of do these non-democratic things and to have a life of flourishing outside of the sphere of politics, I increasingly wonder how widely shared that idea is in that how much we Americans are comfortable with other people making choices in their lives different from the ones that we would make. We did, we did an episode of the show a while back on national conservatism and one of the critiques the national conservatives have of Western democracies is that basically enables people to lead lives that the national conservatives for a variety of reasons, often religious, find distasteful. And so they see the role of the state as forcing people to live the way that they would like to live. And you can find the same sort of stuff on the left, that people live in ways that don't align with my cultural values. And so we're perfectly comfortable there with kind of saying, no, in fact, I don't want there to be a sphere outside of this because I think that that, that would enable people to do things that make me uncomfortable. Sure. So – Insofar as the views that you just described are as you described them, <laughs> insofar as somebody thinks that it's a justifiable deployment of course, the course of power of the state to make people live in accordance with my own values, on my view, those are profoundly anti-democratic uh, ideals because part of what one gets, uh, one of the natural byproducts of uh, a political order rooted in the ideal of self-government among equals uh, this is a sort of later Rawlsian idea, slightly repackaged. It's like part of the one of the byproducts, the sort of intrinsic byproducts of self-government among equals, is that people are going to disagree, not only about politics, but about the values that make a life successful, that um, make a life virtuous, that make a life admirable, even the values that make some particular life admirable or valuable. That's just what you're buying when you commit to the ideal of self-government among equals. So when you commit to the ideal of equality, a community of equals is a community where the, the members who are, constitute the community, insofar as they're equals, they get to make up their own minds within some broad constraints about these, uh, these matters. So the idea that one can be committed to democracy while also holding some strong version of the view, the kind of view you just described, um, seems to me false. That is, I think that if, if, you're, if you're unwilling to countenance the legitimacy of a social order in which people live lives committed to different kinds of values and projects and aspirations and ideals, again, within some very broad constraints, uh, then you're not really interested in the project of constitutional liberal democracy in the first place. Now, I suspect that the more sophisticated version of the kind of view that you spelled out. And this is not to say that the coarser version isn't the more popularly ascribed to version. I'm just saying there's a, uh, a philosophically more sophisticated version of these sort of perfectionist thoughts. By perfectionism, I just mean the idea that it's the state's job to exercise its force in such a way as to make us good or virtuous or admirable according to some particular uh, ideal that the state uh, endorses of admirability or virtuous uh, of, of virtuosity. So, more sophisticated versions of perfectionism are going to say, well, it's it's not that it's it's not just the brute diversity of ways of life that democracy upholds uh, or permits. I should say, it's that some of these ways of life are not only morally corrupt and so bad for the people living them and choosing them, but they're ways of life that 
were people more properly educated or properly acculturated, they themselves wouldn't choose it for themselves. So there's a kind of, I suspect, in the more sophisticated versions of these perfectionist views, a kind of positive liberty ideal that your way of life is corrupt from my point of view, but it's actually corrupt from your point of view, too, if you could only get clear on if you could only be less you know, corrupt in your view of yourself, you too wouldn't choose these things for yourself. A lot of religious-based uh, versions of uh, perfectionism uh, are overtly this way, that if you, you know, if you let Jesus into your heart, you'll see the wrongness of your ways and wouldn't choose, wouldn't choose the life you're living for yourself. So it's the state's job to liberate you from your illusions, <laughs> right? That's how that kind of view goes. Now, one can hold that kind of view as a moral matter, and one can even hold that kind of view as a conception of human autonomy, uh, maybe even of human liberty, but you still need a separate argument to justify the exercise of coercive force. You know, it's like, it might be that, yeah, you wouldn't live the life you're living if, you know, if you weren't so ignorant or enslaved by a corrupt conception of, of what makes a life good. And so, you know, you are in a sense, I might think you are a prisoner to your, to your ignorance or to your irrationality. If you were forced to live another way, you would be liberated from that ignorance and illusion. You still need a separate argument that's going to show that one one gets to deploy the coercive force of the state in order to perform that act of liberation. And those arguments are really hard to, <laughs> seems to me it's hard to make those arguments work for all kinds of purely pragmatic reasons. You know, we've got all kinds of good examples of them going, of political arrangements going very, very badly when the state adopts that kind of conception of itself. But for other kinds of reasons, too, you might even think that it's sort of, you don't get the goods, you don't get the virtues if you're forced to live in accordance with them. You can only get the virtues if you're motivated in a certain way. And deploying the state to force you to live a certain way might get the external behavior. And in that sense, you might get what looks like virtue, but virtues are internal dispositions and you can't, you, you can't get them by way of external coercion. You know, this, by the way, this is roughly Locke's argument for religious toleration. But anyhow, so whether the idea of self-government among equals which uh, my argument entails that there's going to be ongoing moral and political disagreement, whether that's a popular conception or not, uh, you know, I'm not sure. It is, I would argue, the right way of understanding what democracy is committed to and what the values are that are embedded in our founding documents and our institutions that this conception might sound foreign or alien to a lot of citizens of the country is, I think, a further indictment of the way that we practice politics rather than um, a bit of evidence against uh, the ideal. Well, as we were discussing this, I was thinking about nowadays because, as you pointed out, the kind of came up with part of this book after the 2016 election and when it comes to the Trump phenomenon in particular if we're, if we're talking about you know the not letting politics into Thanksgiving as a as a as an example in, in a bunch of areas it seems like it's a matter of norms that maybe there used to be a norm about not discussing politics at Thanksgiving but now things are are different and right. and for say p people who are vehemently anti-Trump you get this, you know, we're talking about uh, someone else, someone who himself has crushed all norms of civility and therefore and has emboldened a movement that simply believes that people of color shouldn't exist or something like this kind of rhetoric that you hear. And therefore, there is nothing to do in this moment except to realize that sort of everything is politics, everything is political and to stand up and fight, even even it. Thanksgiving or in your uh, kids' softball practice or, you know, all these places where maybe politics historically hasn't been allowed. Um, and some of these people would say, you know, would, would probably say something like, I bet you wish that a lot more people politicized non-political spaces before Nazi Germany rose to power. So, you know, the, the kind of thing like speaking up in the right in the right time, even in places where politics isn't supposed to be allowed. How, how would you respond to those critiques? You know, what's happened is, you know, when it comes to policy issues that used to be back in, say, the 80s, culture war 
fault lines uh, for partisan division. I'm thinking here of abortion, stem cells, euthanasia, same-sex relations. I mean, sort of sexual morality in general. I don't know how old you you two are, but I remember growing up uh, in this period, and these were like the things that people got really heated about. We as a polity are are no more divided on these issues than we were back in the 1980s. In fact, with the issues I just discussed, the partisan divisions have eased in that it's it, it's just not a hot button issue anymore. It's very easy to find among rank and file citizens. Now, I'm, I'm leaving aside party leaders, candidates, representatives of the party uh, and their handlers. Leave those guys aside for a second. Among rank and file citizens, we actually are on key issues less divided and on the whole are not more divided when it comes to the other issues than we were 25, 30 years ago. What has intensified is partisan animosity directed towards our fellow citizens. That is to say, it feels to us like the members, you know, the rank and file members of the other party, the guy who's also a parent on the, on the Little League team who I know voted for the, other, for the other guy, he feels more yucky and alien to me. And I infer from that on my account. This is a, for the philosophers listening, this is a straightforwardly Humean account, by the way, right? He feels more icky. And I infer from that in a kind of Humean style rationalization, I infer from that that we are more divided than ever about the politics and also more Humeanism. If I ask him his policy views by first priming him in a way that makes salient his partisan identity, he will express the more extreme policy ideas that are associated with his partisan identity. In cooler moments, though, this is not what people tend to think about the, about the, the policy issues. That is, you ask the same guy a couple of moments later without the partisan cue, what do you think about um, tax rates? What do you think about same-sex marriage? What do you think about abortion? Without the partisan priming, you get far more moderate expressions of conviction, which is to say our expressions of our political, and by the way, this is a point that is sometimes marshaled in support of, um, well, you know, this is a point that's marshaled in all kinds of different ways. Some of, some of them libertarian, I should mention, you know, Ilya Soman, you know, draws a certain kind of conclusion from this sort of the, the plasticity of our political beliefs. That is, we express them in ways that are very sensitive to uh, exogenous kinds of cues. Right. Um, this is looks to Ilya like a reason why, you know, we should go for minimal government, uh, according to Larry Bartels and Chris Action. It's a slightly different kind of uh, realism about democratic theory. Um, all I want to say here is that, you know, um, our partisan identities, when they're primed, when they're made salient to us, drive what we express as our political views, because. Here's the thing that's changed from the 80s till now uh, over the past 40, 50 years, geez, um, is that our partisan identities, our understandings of ourselves as liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat, have become more central to our understanding of our social identity overall. That is, more and more of our lifestyle choices, the our the ways that we live are bound up with, in our own self-conception, our political identity, such that that is more than it has been. A set, uh, uh, we understand ourselves more centrally in those partisan terms than we have in the past. And so we become far more apt to hear questioning of our political ideals as personal attacks. We come to see people living in ways that are unlike our own as threats to our way of life. <laughs> um, and, you know, I could go on like this, but the idea is that we're far more sensitive at the affective level and far more prone to see difference in ways of life as an assault than we were in the past. 
And this is the part of the argument of, of the overdoing democracy book. It's like, and that's how you get these um, uh, off the rails comments threads online. That's how you get all of this partisan animosity. And that's why you get in certain contexts, um, large groups of people um, together, usually together when they get together, ready to express and claim as their actual views um, versions of sort of rank and file conservative or liberal positions that are far more extreme than what you would get them to uh, announce as their view, even under slightly different social contexts. So there's a kind of pantomime kabuki theater of the whole thing that has to do ultimately with the centrality of our partisan identities. The strategy I want to recommend in the book and what these sort of um, uh, trying to create or craft spaces for nonpartisan uh, you know, pro-social cooperative endeavors is just supposed to give us some context for interacting where I can come to understand that somebody is a decent, uh, um, you know, decent human being without understanding or having any knowledge of how he votes. It might be that he votes the same way I do, but my understanding of him as a decent human being isn't parasitic on that piece of information. It's gathered independently of it. The suggestion is that if there were more contexts, and there used to be such contexts, that's another thing that, <clears throat> you know, social as social spaces have become more partisan segregated, they've also become places where we're constantly uh, called upon uh, to uh, express and signal our partisan identities, because that's a way of showing that we belong in the spaces that we're that we're in. And that just means that, you know, I, I don't encounter a courteous, you know, a, a courteous other shopper in the shopping mall um, without having been cued in various ways to understand that person as a co-partisan. And therefore, my conception of you know, what it is to be a responsible, courteous person is bound up with my conception of what it is to be a fellow ally in political debates. That's got to be decoupled if we're going to perform well as democratic citizens. That's the that's the argument uh, uh, in the book. And so if we think of these kinds of cases that, uh, Trevor, you were asking me to think of, like, like well, the, you know, what about, you know, what about the Nazis or what about people who, are so um, uh, uh, dangerous, like, yeah, fight them. Absolutely. But know that it is a feature of a set of cognitive phenomena to which we are all vulnerable to see our entire political opposition as embodying only the most radical version of the opposing side's view. So, when we think this is a um, uh, I, sometimes when I, I I've given these talks to audiences um, uh, at universities where there are lots of people who take themselves to be politically on my left. This is a point that is very hard uh, uh, to, to communicate. Say, you know, not every Republican is a racist. Not, you know, by the way, you, it's not difficult to get for the reasons I just, those human reasons I just spelled out, it's not reasons, it's not difficult to get groups of people primed in certain ways to feed off each other and want to show their solidarity with their identity group to behave in ways that are atrocious. But that's a, that's more a feature of these sort of uh, exogenous features of their behavior. These are environmental cues more than sort of um, expressions of stable dispositions and anything like political views that they have. Um, there's a lot of variation uh, among uh, conservatives about their views about all kinds of things. Um, we tend, because of these cognitive phenomena, to lose sight of that, and we tend to ascribe to the people we regard as our political enemies not only an unreasonable degree of political homogeneity, but also um, we ascribe to them the views that tend to be the most extreme versions of those views. That's part of what um, this, uh, you know, there's a long chapter in the book uh, about the belief polarization phenomenon. 
this is a robust social scientific you know phenomenon this is as about as robust a finding as you get uh in cognitive um uh in uh, social psychology uh that we're vulnerable to this kind of um uh uh shift in uh shift towards extremity in what we express as our commitments uh on the basis of cues from what we perceive to be like-minded others. Uh, that's as robust as you get in this field uh, of, of sort of cognitive social psychology. So um, uh, when, we, when, the, when, when my suggestion that there could be and there needs to be spaces for non-political pro-social engagements is met with resistance that automatically goes to the cases of these dangerous people, I suspect that this come back at me if I'm wrong about this and we we could talk more. I suspect Trevor that, you know, oh, well that just indicates that, you know, you've you've just indicated your vulnerability to thinking of your political enemies as a extreme monolith. And they're not. See, <laughs> uh, so you mentioned how like Ilya Soman, who's been a guest on the show, has his argument is therefore minimal government. And I think early on in the book, if I remember correctly, you say, I'm explicitly not making an argument or I don't need to make an argument for minimal government. But reading this as a libertarian, as a very minimal government sort of guy, why isn't this an argument for the minimal state? I mean, so you said what we need are larger spaces for non-political pro-social interaction and libertarianism can be, I mean, framed sort of as saying, well, yeah, let's just make every space a space for non-political pro-social interaction and get rid of the anti-social political stuff entirely or to the extent possible. And, and it seems to me that one of the problems we run into is if we say, how do we get, you've identified these problems, now how do we undo it? That That a lot of this seeing each other as enemies comes from the fact that, you know, as as the reach of the state grows, as the number of things that it can do to me, the number of choices that it can make for me or that my fellow citizens can make for me through it grows, I, I'm incentivized to care more about it and I'm incentivized to see them as a threat, not just in the, the sense of like imagining they're more extreme than they really are, but in that any differences between me and them become grounds for future damage to my way of life. Like if you and I, it's if you have very little power to do anything to me through the political process, then I can tolerate even very large differences between us in tastes. But but the moment you can operationalize politics and operationalize that coercive force of the state to compel me, say in the educational sector, like if we have public schools, to compel me to get my have my kids educated in a certain way or to pay, you know, an extraordinary amount that I might not have to try to get them out of that system. I, I kind of have to see you as as a threat and I have to start embracing further democracy if I think I can win to push back on that. So it seems it almost seems like you can't get out of this cycle unless we're willing to radically scale back the size and scope of the state and the reach of politics. That might be true. I, I thought you did a nice job saying, look, I, I, my, my claim is not that the account in the book is, runs counter to uh, various kinds of, you know, we'll just, let's just call it sort of minimalist liberalism, <laughs> right? Which, which is a broader category, at least in my understanding, uh, than libertarian. There are lots of libertarian views. Um, so the point I would like to make is, or the point I was, I'm, I'm trying to make in the book is that it's still an open question from the point of view of of the argument of the book, uh, what the limits uh, to and therefore the scope of legitimate state power, what those are. Uh, that's a debate that 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 strikes me as related but different. And um, uh, when I say I'm not making the case for a minimal state. Uh, I mean that sort of understood strictly. I'm not excluding it. It's just it seems to me to be orthogonal. Now, I don't know if it's correct, although it seems to me a one among other plausible candidates, uh, the kind of view you just laid out, Aaron, which is that the threat of being the subject of coercive force by the state 
and you know, let's. Uh, I, I think I can can concede this without being a libertarian. That you know, the the coercive force of this of the modern state, perhaps you know, the one particular or a few particular modern states, you know, are is actually uh, at this point just probably. I'll just pull the mask off and says, yeah, there are modern democratic states that have at their command brutal degrees of coercive force that are problematic on many different registers. <laughs> Let me put it that way. It, it has brought, because I think, yeah, I'm trying to make the argument of this book compatible with a full range of, broadly speaking, constitutional liberal democratic views about the the limits and structure of democratic authority and legitimacy. So I'm trying to be ecumenical in, in this regard. The kind of view that you just laid out um, seems to me to be one one view. And so I wouldn't resist, certainly not a priori, uh, and wouldn't resist for the purposes of this argument, the thought that um, the right conclusion to draw is a that, that the state has to be shrunk uh, or that more severe constraints on the exercise of political power have to be imposed. In fact, depending on what in particular we're talking about, uh, I actually support that. Just to give one kind of example, you know, some mornings I wake up and it just occurs to me how shocking it is that there are people who are working very hard to get jobs as police officers when they know that part of what it means to get that job is to have it as part of your job to enforce blatantly unjust drug laws. So, it, you know, sometimes it's like, what kind of moral failure is this that people are, are stand ready to enforce these laws, which we know these can't be just, you know, in fact, not only are they not just, they're, uh, I would say, stingingly <laughs> unjust, right? Okay, so I'm willing to accept these kinds of thoughts that I, I take it are not exclusively libertarian thoughts, but are thoughts that libertarians are very much at home with. The question is whether the sort of modal strength which which you presented the view, the only way to do this. That's where I would say, I'm not so sure about that because look, we have other contexts that I think are structurally similar to um, the kind of tribal, let's just call it, because I mean to say something now more than just partisan, the tribal animosity, the, the hatred, the vitriol, the escalation that don't involve, uh, at least in a way that's obvious to me, the threat of this massive and I would say uh, in lots of cases, a sort of vulgar degree of coercive power. You know, look at sports fans. They're just like political parties. <laughs> right. But there's no state there that, you know, it's not that I it's not that the, the, the it's not <laughs> it's not that the the fans of the one team. By the way, you see this, you know, in especially throughout Europe, when you look at European football, mm -hmm. um, you know, this is where these phenomena uh, really show up. You know, in the United States, they show up in all kinds of ways. When I give this, this kind of, these kinds of talks in Europe, I just use examples from football about like, yeah, the, the rivalries that exist between these teams and their fans, these people hate each other and they identify as fans of their team and they're, you know, they're connected to regions and, you know, regional rivalries and, you know, uh, all kinds of class and other kinds of di differences. But it just doesn't look to me like, or let me put it this way, those kinds of rivalries and the animosities that emerge uh, and erupt out of them are, on my account, structurally similar to partisan animosities that we see in contemporary democracies. However, in the sports case, we don't have this explanatory feature that Aaron was pointing to of, well, the reason why I hate the other people so much is because if they win, the state gets to push me around and I don't like being pushed around. Or how about if they win, I have to become a fan of that team or or I'm controlled by that team in some way. Well, yeah, well, that would be horrible. That would be, they would be even more violent fans if that were the case. But how, it, but in the sports case, is that, I, again, I'm. It's not how it works. I'm just saying no, if that it's not were how the it case. Works. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. So I just want to just say, look, we have this other context in which there isn't an analog of the threat of the massive power of the state, but you still have the affective polarization phenomena um, operating in a way that 
looks to me structurally, maybe it's even better, it's stronger than similar. It looks to me structurally identical. So that just, I want to draw the conclusion now against Aaron's suggestion that the minimal state is the only, I'm not resisting the thought that it's a contender. I'm just saying it's not yet clear to me that it's the only way out of partisan animosity, because it looks as if we got this other case where the same phenomena are being driven in the absence of that threat from coercive power of the state. And I think I've got a good argument in the book that shows, yeah, the tribalism of sports fans and the tribalism, you know, especially um, in Europe where you've got these, um, you know, these huge problems with hooliganism, right? Um, The tribalism that goes on with sports fans and the tribalism that goes on with um, polarized partisan uh, partisans in the United States are just, these are just two different manifestations of the very same set of cognitive phenomena. In the political case, you've got the the threat of the state as part of the mix. In the sports case, you don't have that. So it seems to me that that suggests that um, it's not clear at the very least that um, the only way out in the political case is by minimalizing the state. How's that argument? <laughs> well, I can just say if I had access to the state in these areas, I would totally use it to oppress New York Jets fans. So it it would certainly be worse, I think, um, even if you know getting rid of it doesn't necessarily make it immediately better. But don't the the Jets fans have enough problems there? Yeah, that's, they, that they, would they be don't the need they don't need anything more from you. Uh, but this this pathway out. So we've talked about. I mean, much as it pains me to say it, going to the minimal state is probably not something that's going to happen in the immediate future, and the. You know, just setting aside our differences and looking at each other as human beings, especially when we've become so primed to do otherwise, is very difficult. So, what are with all of this? I mean, it's a grim picture. So, what are kind of the practical steps? What do you think are the ways that we can actually get out of this that aren't, man, it would be good to go back and start over and not make these mistakes along the way? Let me, uh, as a sort of preface, one way in which I can't answer the question is by giving a to-do list, uh, not only because I bristle against academics doing that kind of thing, but also because I think that um, in this particular case, it would be um, not only unhelpful, but would run contrary to uh, part of the diagnostic story of the book to say, here are the, the five things to do to save democracy. And here's the reason why. If the diagnostic argument of the book is correct, whatever steps that we're going to take to try to um, restore our um, ability to regard others as decent human beings independent of our um, understanding or knowledge of their partisan identity. Um, if we're going to restore any of that, um, we have to build new things. we got to do different things, uh, things that um, – we have to do things in a different way. So it's not like, you know, again, it's not a, you know, take your take, – take the closest Republican to lunch. You know, that's – that can't be the right level of description for the solution. Um, I think this story made it into the book, but I'll tell it because I, I think it's um, – I think it it reveals something important. You know, in an early version of this talk, um, uh, an early version, an early talk about this stuff, I should say, um, you know, I got this kind of question, you know, what should we do? And uh, I very naively, uh, naively as I now come to understand it, said, well, just volunteer to, you know, how about just volunteering to pick up litter from the park? And the person looked at me and said, but that would be a liberal thing to do. You know, in philosophy, uh, we sometimes uh, talk about the incredulous stare. You know, I gave the sort of chuckle and the incredulous stare, and I said, you mean it's liberal to not like junk? And went on to the next question. And, you know, it kind of bothered me the next day. I said, man, I I think I really messed up. Um, I exhibited the very pathology that I'm diagnosing because I had no idea what that person was calling liberal. She might not have been saying that it's liberal to want uh, to want less litter in the park. She might have been saying it's liberal to volunteer or she might have been saying it's liberal to volunteer outside of a church community or she might have said it's liberal to volunteer to pick up litter when you could volunteer to teach someone to read. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways in which she could have not been expressing the view that I instantly ascribed to her. And so I thought, gee, 
my own conception of what would count as a non-political cooperative endeavor is in ways that are not immediately apparent to me already sort of in, you know infected with my own partisan you know with my own partisan ideals i'm sure so in the book what i say is look there couldn't be a to-do list because you know anybody's to-do list is already going to be susceptible to being just an expression of their own partisan ideals so i say this what you need to do is think you know first of all recognize your own susceptibility your own standing vulnerability to the belief polarization phenomenon. This is a phenomenon that we're really good at seeing in other people and are very, very, it's part of the profile of the phenomenon to not be visible to us. We don't feel ourselves becoming more extreme. Uh, we don't report. In fact, when you, uh, in the belief polarization experiments, when you show people, look, before you talked with the other jurors, you said that this kind of punitive award would be the most except it would be the would be the right punitive award and anything in excess of that by a certain degree would be excessive now you talk to the other jurors who want to punish this guy you're recommending an award that goes far higher than the threshold you set people express surprise so they don't realize that they're being pulled along by this group dynamic um, so the first thing to recognize is like, yeah, learn this, learn this fact about ourselves. And then in light of that awareness, try to just think of an activity that you can do that is not expressive of your political partisan identity and try it. And if you go and try it and you find that your partisan identity is being affirmed, do something else. Or if you find that your partisan identity is being um, challenged, Try to tell the people who you're doing it with that you're not there for the politics. And if that doesn't work, do something else. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.